Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing experience on Asia across the Nordic region. It's a great pleasure to be here today having a chance to talk to Karen Zakari, who defended her PhD thesis just a few months ago to Lund University. I was privileged to be virtually there attending her dissertation defense, and we've been very much hoping to get together and have a follow-up conversation about PhD thesis. We're still, alas, not able to cross the sound and do that in person very easily, but we are meeting virtually here today to have a Nordic Asia podcast conversation about the PhD. Karen, welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast. Thank you very much, Duncan. I'm really happy that we could make it happen. Yeah. So obviously your PhD is on a topic that's rather close to my heart. The title is, if I'm not wrong, Framing the Subjects, Human Rights and Photography in Contemporary Thai History. Maybe you could just tell us how you got interested and involved in this particular topic. Well, I mean, I am in the field of human rights studies Mm -hmm. in humanities. So I was interested in human rights history. I had a great interest in Thai nationalism, and I wanted to combine that somehow. And then I also had this interest in photographs and photography. I mean, more specifically, there isn't that much on studies about human rights history in Thailand. And there were even less when I started writing. Now there are some good works out there. But when I started with the PhD thesis, they were not. And I had this interest in the history of human rights. And that was an important driving factor. I mean, human rights is kind of a moving target when you look Mm. at it through history. It is a lot more than a set of UN documents that Thailand is either breaching or following. And the discourse around human rights in Thai society changes. So in the 1970s, the understanding of what human rights was and their political force turned out to be quite different from the human rights agenda of, say, the first National Human Rights Commission of Thailand. Mm. Another thing that was this interest I had in the role of photography in human rights activism, the fact that for a century and more, we are used to looking at photographs of human suffering, of atrocities, of death, violence Mm. that are produced to make us react. And there is this belief in power of photographs to kind of transmit the witnessing of atrocious events, Mm. and that would or should prompt action. Now, I don't want to go too deep into my argument that I put forth in the dissertation, but I was curious on this assumption And that curiosity only grew the more I found out about photographs of violence in Thailand. Third, and the most specific reason for coming to this topic, was my own meeting with publications about the event known as 14th October 1973, and how that was portrayed in the publications, and then slowly finding out more and more about the 6th October 1976 event, finding out more about the photographs from that event, and wanting to understand the differences that I observed in the two events that at that time had been explained as linked and part of Thailand's kind of path towards democracy. And I observed that many times photographs from the two events were messed up, they were mixed up, and presented as part of the same thing or object or phenomena in Thai history. So I wanted to know what these images could tell us about 
about the perception of history, about how history of these events had been incorporated or not incorporated in Thai history and what that meant for the history of human rights in Thailand. So yeah, Karen, for the benefit of our listeners, you've mentioned the 1970s a couple of times, and that was obviously a pivotal period in Thailand's political history. Could you explain why that was? It was turbulent political time. It was a violent time. There was the rise of communism in Southeast Asia, also in Thailand. Socialist ideas, liberalism Mm -hmm. was floating around. There was right-wing nationalism. So a lot of ideas that were contesting. And then there were these two events that really shaped the whole century. So the first is 14th October 1973, which is marking the first time that a popular uprising um, makes military government step down in Thailand. And Thailand had been a dictatorship since 1948. And then there follows a period, a very politically unstable period. Military and conservative forces initially were losing to liberal socialist parties. And they were also mobilizing, scared by the prospect of communist overtake. And they were stepping up violence to kind of return the country to a status quo. And this comes to an end in October 1976, after a democratic period, with the massacre of a student movement, a student-led protest at the Tamasat University campus in central Bangkok. And after that, a military coup and a new conservative government took over Thailand. And this is kind of the end of the beginning and end of the height of communism as well in Thailand. Right. So there's this really, really important period, especially between 73 and 76, when a lot of the issues that your thesis is focusing on come to the fore. But the lens that you use to look at those issues is primarily a lens of photography. And that's something that's rather novel and original about your thesis. Why did you bring that particular perspective to bear? And what does it elucidate about the topic that we wouldn't get without using the angle of photography? I mean, there is a lot in how photographs sort of lock a moment in our minds and how photographs can function as sites of memory, as a material trace of memory and history, Mm. in place of memory, and as a sort of bridge between memory and history. And the most atrocious photographs in my study have been used as sort of evidence in a forensic sense, kind of look what happened, this Thai state murdered us. At the same time, Photography and other visual media shape narratives and are actively used to create narratives, to kind of create that lock of a moment in our minds. So that means that people who grow up today in Thailand, they are taught to understand an event in past history through images to a large extent and the sort of right images to create a narrative that is plausible, reasonable, logical. Mm. What I have found is how easily photographs lend themselves to contestations Mm -hmm. over history and memory. We look at the same photograph, but do we actually see and interpret it in the same way? So by studying not only photographs, but photography, Mm. uh, which is the process begins actually before a photograph is even taken. And it includes especially dissemination and archiving. I believe that there are a lot more nuances to history that can be uncovered, and especially about how, why perhaps we have a certain idea about an event. 
Right. I mean, I think for many of us, if we think about 1976, those of us familiar with Thailand's politics and history, we tend to, in our minds, go to particular images, especially this one very, very iconic image of a student apparently hanging from a tree. Could you say something about why that particular photograph in some way epitomizes a lot of what we think we know and understand about the 6th of October 1976? Yes. And I think, unfortunately, there are, I think there are two explanations to this. Mm -hmm. I I just say, unfortunately, because it's always more complicated trying to explain. First, I think the power is not only in the photograph itself. Mm -hmm. It is very much due to the dissemination of it. Because this photograph, this particular photograph, this frame, was shot by a foreign photographer, Neil Ulevich. And he was working for Associated Press and was one of few that were published in foreign press that made it out of the country before the military shut down, which they actually did. And what I found when I was going through archives was that many newspapers actually did publish gruesome, atrocious photographs in the Mm. evening editions of 6 October and the morning editions of 7 October before the new military government had taken over and Mm. uh, issued a general censorship. But this photograph was not only published abroad, it also won the Pulitzer Prize. So it has, since the event itself, it has been available and reproduced in so many different forms. Through this easy availability of this particular photograph, I think that really contributes to that being chosen through a long process. I mean, it's not chosen by a person or a couple of agents. It is something that happens in change, of course. But it has become a stylized symbol of the massacre. And while the bulk of press photographs have not been disseminated, and very few were published during the first 20 years after the Mm. event. Now, looking at the photograph itself, I think the power is in the fact that it captures the time. It freezes this chaos of that day in one frame. So it is the composition. This is in shade of tamarind trees, and this body is hanging in line with the tree trunk in the middle of the photograph. And there is this half circle of onlookers creating a kind of vignette, and then the action itself that is caught. And this action is the man who is swinging a chair, aiming at the body hanging from the tree. It is terrifying. Yet some children in the photograph are seen smiling, laughing. And that perplexes the onlooker. The message is actually not so clear. Is this not atrocity that we are looking at? Should not atrocity be met with rejection, anger, fear? What does this tell us about our society, about ourselves? This was a chaotic day. And perhaps it was the most chaotic time in Thai history when it took place. But I think also for Thais, there's yet more symbolism. Because in the background, one can see the Grand Palace towering. Any Thai will know that this is Sanam Luang, a very significant place in Bangkok. The royal grounds, right? It is the the royal grounds, yes, but it's also a people's ground. There were markets Mm. there. There is a place where children have been playing with kites in their childhood. So it is a very significant place in Bangkok, connecting, I think, royals with the people. So I think that there are two explanations for why this particular picture. Yes, I mean, on one level, of course, the picture becomes a cliche because it's reproduced so many times, but still the power of that photograph is quite astounding. And I think Mm. it it really resonates through the decades. 
You've obviously found a lot of other photographs, some of which many people will not have seen. Perhaps you could, this is radio, so it's hard to talk about photographs, but you did mm. a wonderful job of, of talking about the, the first one. Is there another photograph, maybe one that you came across that other people wouldn't, wouldn't recognize so easily that you would like to talk about that might give us a slightly different angle or message about the events of the 6th of October? I mean, there are so many that are kind of haunting me still, though I've spent too much time with them. And I made a very active choice not to publish less well-known photographs in the dissertation. And I have a long discussion about that. There is one that I think kind of, to me, it, it has a lot of meaning and it is showing a body lying on the street in the forefront. And in the back is a cameraman filming the body. Yes. And there is one more actor in this photograph. It is the photographer whose place we take as onlookers. Yes. And to me, this photograph says so much about the publicness of the event, all the mm. records that are actually available, if you look, yet the silent censorship, confusion, and misunderstandings about the event. But there is also, I mean, that is one thing, but there are also one of few photographs that show female victims yes. that I encountered very early. Another is one of few photographs showing female victims. And these type of photographs were far less disseminated than other atrocious photographs. That has nothing to do with the publications. It, they were published in Thai newspapers directly after the event, but then they have not been reproduced in the same to the same extent as others. And they have not been used to identify victims to the same extent as photographs of male victims. And this photograph was a sort of mystery to me. Mm. I had seen it in some underground publications, but without a lot of information. The photograph is of a woman naked. She's lying flat on the ground. Her eyes and mouth are wide open. Her top has been pulled up over her arms. So you can see her breasts. A wooden stick or rod has been left on top of her. And this was kind of haunting me for a long time. And I wrote quite a bit about it. And then in 2018, the woman was identified and named and published online as part of a project for doing just that. You mentioned and this and you said that you came across a lot of photographs that hadn't been so much in the public eye. Can you tell us something about the, the challenges of tracking down the materials in your thesis, some of this stuff, you know, there hadn't been a lot of very open public debate and conversation about these events, as we know, for many years afterwards. How difficult was it to uncover the sorts of materials that you needed in order to write your thesis? I mean, it was extremely tedious at times and very disappointing. <laughs> One really has to understand what you're saying, and there is not a lot in public and there are also no comprehensive archive to turn mm. to. Eventually, I found most of my newspaper materials I found in Australia. Right. And not in Thailand, mm. not at the National Library of Thailand. Mm -hmm. And in the archives and libraries that do have some materials, then the metadata is often insufficient or just lacking altogether. So mm. there is no information about what are you looking at unless you yes. already know from other sources. And it's clear to me now just how much conflict over history and historiography, yes. as well as ongoing conflicts, are reflected in official repositories, mm -hmm. limiting the spread of knowledge about these events. So, for example, the 6th October massacre in 1976 
there are actually no photographic records available in the National Archive of Thailand. Mm. But there are of 14th October. But I needed to know when, where and how often the photographs appeared. Yes. And then I couldn't find that. I mean, there's also a question of resources. It's not only censorship. Like, it's not that straightforward. It's right. also a question of resources. Mm-hmm. At National Library of Thailand, they had some editions of older newspapers, but I could not find complete collections. And then the microfilm reader was so bad. I had to take a break every 15, 20 minutes as I felt nauseous using mm. the microfilm reader. Mm. And turning then to the major printing houses, they also do not keep old copies. So actually, originals of the photos were very hard to find. And going to the Bangkok Post, which is supposedly a very resourceful newspaper, they had an archive, but it's all in bits and pieces because Mm. they have been organizing according to their own logic. And it looks kind of like scrapbook folders. And that isn't really useful from a historical point of view. Yes, and I've also uh, spent quite a lot of time going through old Thai newspapers in the mm. National Archives and the Tamasar University Library. Yeah. And yes, uh, many months can pass without finding anything of great interest until suddenly something intriguing does pop up. And with the case of the Tamasar University Library, where newspapers are actually kept, yes, they are not kept in a way that preserves them, mm-hmm. and they are not kept out of harm. No. So. The newspapers about 1976 and covering October 1976, they have been damaged. And then there are no other copies, except then if you go to the US or Australia. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's a very sad state of affairs, isn't it? Photographs have come up time and time again in the Thai context as, well, how can we best sum this up, expressions of state power or what you might call structural violence. And those of us who follow Thailand know that just at the most mundane level, there are constant images of people in police stations who've been charged of crimes with all the evidence against them laid out in in the table in this very, very formulaic, predictable, but also somewhat disturbing ways. Can you explain why it is that certain kinds of photographs and perhaps some of those that you talked about in your thesis fall into a similar category? exercise such a hold over the way in which power is constructed in Thailand? Because there's a sense of which, you know, the capacity of the authorities to formulate these images, which always somehow imply a kind of subjection of the individual to power, is something that they're incredibly attached to. Yeah, I mean, that type of photographs that you are talking about now, they are unthinkable in many other news, I mean, in other countries, because they are so unethical. and. This, the alleged culprit has not been sentenced by any court and yet presented as criminals. I mean, there is this embeddedness in the constructions of power. So these type of photographs have to be understood in relation to other images of power in Thai society, against which their moral code is measured. So one part of it is a cosmos of evil and good, and where karma is prevalent in the sense of justice, right? And for many times, it is still so that there is perhaps only one photograph printed of you, your ID photograph, which is issued by the state. And then the state powers, the police, define your existence through such culprit photographs. And to come back to this kind of the moral code against which they are measured, I mean, photographic practices developed parallel with the Thai modern nation state, which is in no way unique. Mm. But 
it formed both visions of what constituted that state and the identities yes. of its subjects. The absolute kings of Siam used photography and the image of the king, which was prior to photography, it was a taboo to, to make images of the king. Right. They started to be worshipped in level with Buddha statues in provincial administration and in homes. And this was very purposefully by the absolute king to spread his image uh, around his country. So photography served to strengthen the cultural role of the Siamese kings when absolutism was on decline. So there is an element of visual power in the Thai public already in place. And when the military authoritarian rulers began to boost kind of the monarchy as the benevolent father figure, a different side of that coin was also came to display. And that was what has been called the despotic paternalism. And in these type of, I mean, it, it took the expression of, in papers, could see actually executions in the 1960s and 70s. All pictures just of dead people who had been killed because they deserved to die or they were malicious people or whatever the story about them was. The type of photographs of criminal culprits and also the executions of alleged criminals or bad elements in society, mm. it is part of the state showing its omnipotent power over the subjects of the state, the nation. These acts of violence, whether they be evidence of law enforcement, whether they are displays of state violence, they contribute to the construction mm. of citizens. Yes. So the subjects being defined through their relation to this exercise of power. Well, you've talked about some really fascinating and often disturbing issues in the thesis in our conversation just mm. now. And you've also alluded to the difficulty of accessing many of the materials that you used. But you've also hinted that there are some ongoing efforts to memorialize the two Octobers, to preserve and make more accessible some of these materials. Can you tell us something about that? Do you think that the situation for future researchers might be a little bit brighter as a result of some of these projects? Yes. I mean, I see now these students who come out to protest today, how much they refer to events such as the 6 October massacre. Mm -hmm. And that was just unthinkable. I would say a decade ago, there wasn't right. this kind of awareness about it. And a lot of that, I think all almost credit is to this project called the documentation of 6 October. And this is an online sort of archive over the massacre yes. and the events leading up to it. So there you can find it, copies, complete editions mm -hmm. of newspapers and all different kinds of photographs and also testimonies and videos and so on. And this is a massively ambitious project. And it was, I just need to say, it was not in place when I started my research project. So I have incorporated as an object of my study, kind of showing the uses of right. photography in writing counter history in Thailand and especially writing a human rights history. Because these photographs, atrocious as they are, they were not a part of Thailand's human rights history until the earliest, I would say, 2000s. There were attempts already in 1996, but this whole narrative about it as a human rights event is a lot more recent. Now, the October 14th event has memorial, a big memorial, and that right. is since 2001. So it's kind of more institutionalized, yet a major part of preserving records of the event has been carried out 
by a voluntary group called the 14th October Memorial Foundation. And they, of course, struggled to maintain the collections and the memorial itself, which is always threatened by urbanization and expansion of capitalism in Bangkok. But with this online project, there is a possibility to reach outside of Thailand. That isn't possible with the physical monuments, uh, basically. But of course, this online archive makes it possible and also to connect to Thais abroad and Thais living in exile and people who want to know more about Thai history in general as well. So there's a lot of potential in it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's very heartening to hear that there is some progress in terms of making those materials more accessible despite the, the continuing challenges of working on these questions. But, uh, you know, you have done a great deal with this thesis to open up the field further and to call people's attention to the, the salience of these images that are so incredibly powerful and important. So it's a, it's a great contribution. I know that four articles for part of your thesis have, have already been published. So you have also succeeded in reaching, creating a larger audience for these questions yourself. I don't know what to say. Yes. <laughs> well, I hope so. And I hope that I've contributed a little bit to move away from a fear of touching mm-hmm. these subjects right. and a fear of kind of talking about them or writing about them in the wrong way. One can look at them with a critical historical eye as well, and that there is space for that too. Absolutely. Well, it's been wonderful to hear about this project. It's a fantastic thesis and there's lots of really, really interesting, we haven't even begun to touch on all of the debates and the arguments and the perspectives that you bring in there. Thank you so much. It's been a huge pleasure, Karen, to have you on the Nordic Asia podcast. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about my dissertation. I feel very privileged. I'm Duncan McCargo. I'm uh, director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and also professor of political science at the University of Copenhagen. And I've been presenting the Nordic Asia podcast today in conversation with Karen Zakari from Lund University. And we are, as ever, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.